Welcome to the Salary to CEO podcast, the show that helps you leave your nine to five and build a life of wealth, purpose, and autonomy through small business ownership. I'm your host, Jake Richards, and I'm obsessed with the idea of building simple businesses exceptionally well. Today's episode is a special one. We sit down with James Richardson, the man who went from employee to building a $15 million per year, six business portfolio in only 18 months. James explains the once in a lifetime opportunity of buying, not starting a small business, He outlines the step-by-step roadmap to buying your first one, as well as his secrets on getting investors on board, the top five business qualities for a successful acquisition, and how to avoid the costly mistake he made that led to overpaying for his first business. This one is a business buying masterclass. You're going to love it, so let's get into it. James Richardson, Business Buying Brit. How's it going, man? Good, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me today. I can't tell you how excited I'm for this one. One, because I consume your content religiously, but two, I just got to say, like, now that you're on the show, I inspired so much about what you've done. This is the Salary to CEO podcast and a very short amount of time, i.e. April last year, you've done that. You've gone from salary to CEO and in quite a remarkable way. For those people that aren't as familiar with you, why don't you just give us a bit of background about who you are, where you came from, where you are now and kind of where you're going. So I moved to New York in my late twenties as a single guy with my job at the time. I was working for a large accounting firm and I was working in London. So they sent me to New York. I was meant to be there two years and then go home. When I met my wife in New York, ended up extending my visa, my intercompany visa, and we ended up getting married and decided our permanent base was going to be the US. It's funny because my wife actually loves the UK and would happily move to the UK in a heartbeat. I really love the US. I'm kind of a born entrepreneur and kind of wired that way. And what I saw in America was pretty cool. And so I, I, I'm excited about living here. And as you said, like I finally left my career in April of last year. I'd been with them 12 and a half years, inching up the ladder. And they got to a point where it's kind of one rung of the ladder left. Like in the big accounting firms, they work like the law firm. So you kind of get the partner is the big kind of carrot that you want at the end. And I'd worked my way all the way up to director just the step before. And I just knew in my heart that if I'd stayed and, and gone for that, then I ultimately wouldn't have been happy or satisfied in my work. And I always wanted to buy small businesses. So after several kind of attempts and exploring, I pulled the trigger on first business in April. This is April of last year. I closed on the same day I had it in my notice. So it was like the most scary day of probably my whole working life. And then it's been a wild ride since then. So yeah, I think it's over a year and a half at this point. I've added a roofing company to that first company, which is a retaining wall company. And then we've also added a concrete paver business as well. And there's some smaller companies in there as well, like smaller holdings or maybe like a roll up, but we've now have three main operating businesses and it's been a great ride. So what was that role that you were in before for what you say mentioned 12 years? What were you actually doing? When I first started at PwC, I was an auditor. I mean, that was useful because I learned how to read financial statements, but I really wanted to move into restructuring and turnaround. To me, it seemed like the most interesting part of what PwC did, like kind of go in when a company is like maybe in trouble and see if you can save it. So That was a great experience. And one of my fondest memories really looking back is the amount of countries I've had to work in. So I spent time in 12 different countries doing, you know, various types of mostly restructuring work. My enjoyment for that came to an end, you know, when my season of life changed and I got married and started having kids. And so I just didn't want to travel anymore. So that also was a driver in me wanting to try and just to do this for myself, buying small businesses. And my goal is really to build a portfolio of them. Many people I meet want to buy a business and just absolutely kill it with that one business. And that's great. And that can work really well. I've seen that happen. But for me, I always really just wanted to have like this family of businesses, a portfolio or a hold co. 
Totally. Just run me through a little bit on your current state in terms of where you are this year, how big are we talking? Because you've only been going since April 2022. I'm grateful to say like each business has grown, but to varying degrees since we've acquired it. So some not too much. The one that's grown the most is the roofing company at this point. We're not twice the size, but we are approaching twice the size we were when we closed in the business. So at the moment, revenue for the group is between 12 and 15 million. It depends whether you're kind of looking at run rate or whether if you're looking at the last 12 months, but somewhere in that region. So that's where we're at right now. And is that really a problem? Like obviously everyone wants to grow, right? And you've had like that success with the roofing business. The fact of the matter is I imagine you're buying good quality businesses to start with. So even if you're not getting crazy growth, right, you're still getting cash flow from these businesses and then you can build that up sustainably. Yes. So the way I think about growth is when you buy a small business, it is reasonable to go in thinking that you will actually have a bit of a correction in terms of like, just pick a number. Let's say you're at 4.3 million in revenue. Like I wouldn't be surprised if you told me, Jake, when you buy businesses, 4.3 comes down to maybe four before starting to climb up again, because your customers have to adjust, your suppliers have to adjust, your employees like everyone, and you have to adjust as well, like to the new business, all of this has to happen. That is kind of to be expected, which is why side topic, when you buy the business, you have to stress test that in. Like you have to see what happens if revenue comes down 10% that first year, can I still make my debt payments? So that's one consideration. I mean, I'd like to aim for 20% growth year over year. That's quite strong growth, but I believe like it's worth going for it. And I think healthy businesses grow. Yeah, totally. And like, why would you go into something if you're not trying to do a good job of it, right? So like it just logically makes sense. I'm curious, like we talk about 12 years of experience going, kind of going back to your W2 there and you ended up being in turnarounds. You were kind of in the space of M&A to start with. For that listener there, that's kind of, maybe they're sitting in their nine to five, maybe they haven't got that exposure and they're saying, okay, of course, James has gone in, bought four businesses in 12 months and he's off and racing. What do you say to that person and how big of an opportunity is it still for them? That is true. And I do have that experience that most people don't have, but there's a few things to draw out here. One is that I messed up my first purchase. I paid too much for it. It was helpful and it probably gave me the confidence to try it, but small business financials are totally different to, to large business financials. And also I was working long hours and I was traveling, I was away. So it's kind of in a hotel room, remote in the evening, like just trying to like crank out some diligence and stuff. And I missed a bunch of things on that first deal, but I've now corrected. You can see someone with like a good resume quote, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're immune from anything. So if I've done it, someone else can do it for sure. I want to obviously credentialize myself, like, because I, I do know what I'm talking about at this point, because I've been through the, but I still make mistakes every single time. And I try and just learn from them each time. So I feel that's what we can all do. But sometimes I'm tempted to just go in and be like, I just jumped in with like half a parachute and tried to just figure it out on the way down. I could relate to that. Yeah. Let's drill down into that a little bit. You say you overpaid too much. Like, how does that actually look in reality? When did you realize what's that first deal look like and that mistake in particular? We essentially paid twice what the business is worth. We basically rushed the purchase. Honestly, like in summary, we, we rushed it to try and meet the timeline expectations of the seller. And there were some valid reasons for it. I would say on a general basis, if someone wants to accelerate a sale, like that is a red flag. Yeah. There were some reasons here why we needed to do it, but because we then worked on a quick timeline and because I was like super busy in the evenings or during the day and kind of away from my family in the night, like I just 
I just didn't spend enough time on it. In terms of overpaying, is it just a matter of like compared to other similar businesses that have sold in that area with those kind of characteristics, you just paid a higher multiple? Is it as easy as that? Or is there more to it that I'm not seeing? For most people, it's like if you're getting a download of say a QuickBooks file or, you know, whatever the accounting software is, you want to spend some time bridging it to tax financials because they'll be different. And also there's a third check that uh, you do is where you take the bank statements and you kind of build up the financial statements just to make sure they kind of approximate each other and there's no glaring differences. That's very common in financial diligence. And I saw this meme once, which was like the people that most need to you know, do financial diligence are actually people that have financial diligence experience or like have worked in finance because they almost like are less willing to be like, let's ask someone else to do it. I'll just do it, you know, but like, it's really helpful to have a extra set of eyes on it. So that's our method going forward. It's like, yes, I've done that in the past professionally, but I now I do my own checks, but then I ask someone else to do checks for me. So there's a few things you can check. Right. So it just came down to understanding the numbers. Yeah. It's just the correct numbers. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. And also like just as a basic point, like, as I said, like small business financials are not always what large business financials are. And like, that's just part of it. You've got to know that going in. There's some inherent risk in there because they don't have a finance team working on the books every, every day, week and month. There's a bit of a trust factor in some ways. In some ways. I mean, I always say when you, on day one of owning the business, you'll never know hundred percent about the business. That's kind of impossible. So in diligence, you're kind of looking for, you're investigating thoroughly to the best of your ability, but you'll never know hundred percent about the business. You'll arrive on day one and be like, man, I've got a lot to learn. Let's go. Yeah, totally. So let's jump into actually buying the businesses, right? We've had a little bit of a story about what you just said there, but the first thing that comes to mind, and again, context here is I'm a beginner, I'm getting started in this space, is it's about kind of setting your strategy, right? You talked about, which I see as kind of one strategy, that kind of portfolio of companies, right? Where you kind of buying quality businesses, sitting at more at the above the business level, and you're kind of driving those high needle moving elements of the business. And then on the other side, You've got that person that's all in on one business. They're not even interested necessarily in, in buying anymore. And they're really owning and operating it. And that kind of real typical operator entrepreneur. First of all, why was it that you entered in the way that you did? Like you told me you liked it, but why, what did you see in the opportunity? I'm well aware of the trend of, you know, the baby boomer generation selling businesses. And so I know there's a lot of opportunity out there and I've always looked for the opportunity in front of me. And I feel like I'm quite a good connector and deal maker. So I, what I kind of predicted has happened in that once you've done one deal, like people will bring you other deals because they know, you're, they know you're no longer a tire kicker. You actually do what you say and you actually buy businesses. So the opportunity is there to buy multiple. And I kind of just wanted to create this like family of businesses. Like at some point we may share employees across them. And I'd seen, uh, I'd seen a couple of firms do this, like not, not at like an individual level, but I've seen them out where it's like, a so-and-so company, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I just had that model in my mind at some point. That's what I'm doing. And I've, I've set out to build a portfolio of $100 million. That's a revenue number. Why revenue? Like, I don't actually care about revenue. It's kind of a vanity metric, but it's like easily understood by everyone, revenue. And it gives me like a nice goalpost. Do you have a time span on that? I did when I first set, set out. I was like, I'm going to do it in five years. Or I want to do it in five years. Yeah. And like, I do think that's possible, but I've decided to slow down. If it happens in five, great. If it takes 10, also great. I really, really enjoy my work and I enjoy what I do. So like, I'm not going to like kill myself to do it in five and miss out on 
spending time with my kids and other things are just so important to me, you know? Yeah, vanity metric versus actually what's contributing to my life, what's actually making my life better. Just kind of drilling down on that point, is there characteristics where you say like, or maybe a stereotype where it's like, okay, this kind of person with this kind of experience at this kind of stage in our life, okay, you're better suited to the owner operator model. Okay, this kind of person, same criteria, you're more suited to building a portfolio of companies. You spoke yourself a little bit about being someone who's a bit of a connector and good in the deal space. But I'm curious, just like for people that are trying to find themselves and where they fit into that space beyond the initial, like, I really like the sound of that. Is there has some kind of characteristics? It's a good question. I like that. My general advice is to buy one company and start there because we all evolve as people and who I am today isn't the same as James five years ago. Like I know some people, incredibly impressive, successful, talented people who want to just buy one company and be CEO of it. It just kind of feels nice to them and like, that's great. But like they may do that for five, 10 years and then think, man, I want to buy a second. So I just think start with one because even if you want to hold co, you don't want to be too scattered. You want to buy one and focus to begin with. So yeah, I, I just think it evolves over time. And on that, I saw that when you started, you actually went in as a bookkeeper and like drew like a little bit of a salary, like even you yourself, quote unquote, worked within the business. Is that something to consider as well? Like if you were to talk to yourself a year and a half ago, would you say that was the right approach? You should have gone in and manage it from the start or getting the operator or the manager in from the start was a good idea. If you go in and become manager, I think having like a shadow period is very important with the outgoing seller. For me, I knew I didn't want to be company manager. I think I could learn to do that, but I don't think it's what I'm naturally good at. I'm a visionary with financial training. It's kind of a useful combination. I just, my heart wouldn't be in like managing the day to day. I think I add more value by being at where I currently am. But it was useful going in and finding myself a job on day one. That's because the bookkeeper was leaving with the sale. Right. And like, if that happens, like that is something you or one could do if that's something that you think you could do. Because it allows you to become very familiar with suppliers, customers, how you do billing, all of these critical, important things. Yeah, totally. I totally get that. So basically have an honest conversation with yourself and where you see yourself long-term. And don't necessarily fall into the trap of thinking you have to go in and operate from day one. You can get someone in, even if you're just starting with one business. The thing I would um, kind of warn against is being completely absentee. Some people want to buy a business. They've seen some things online. It's like, I could be a fully absentee owner. And like, you want to be local to it. You want to be able to be there. And honestly, if this is a new step for you buying businesses, you probably want to spend a good few months there just until you feel a little comfortable with everything you know see the dollars going in dollars going out operations cranking out the work like all of the different facets of the business like i would warn against fully absentee models i'm sure it can work but it's not for me i'm curious about identifying what types of businesses to go after as well there's people like myself maybe you started the same way maybe not given your experience but we go in and we read the same books, buy them, build, Harvard Business Review Guide for Buying a Small Business, these kind of books. And we start to see like, okay, it's not so much about the industry that we have to focus on, but it's actually more about the opportunity. What type of business, whether it be product, whether it be service, whether it be distribution, manufacturing, what I think is really fascinating about you is you've had like a handful of service businesses. And I think if I'm not mistaken, a manufacturing business as well, so I'm curious on this kind of topic with your experience, maybe dive into one of some of the pros and cons of each. 
how do you see that shaping up when you're targeting specifically the type of business to go after? I think some people are wired for a certain industry and they may be super deep in a field. And so that gives them an unfair advantage in, in that niche. For most people, I, I believe in looking for the opportunity that's right in front of you. So what are the businesses you actually personally interact with? It could be your HVAC company or your roofing company that you already know. Now I've had service your house, you know, those kind of things. So that's why it seems a bit random for me. But as we continue, I think we're kind of niching down in pretty much every business somehow touches real estate somehow. Home services is something I, I like. It's not too asset heavy. So anything that's something to do with real estate and then like, I do like service businesses. Yeah. So let's unpack that a bit. I think for context, it's helpful to understand that before getting into buying businesses, you were buying real estate, right? So kind of go into that unfair advantage, even if that is an element that you'd had a lot of exposure to in that space. But secondly, when you said, I like service businesses, they're asset light businesses. That's one of the thing just getting started that kind of scares me because quite honestly, my first impression was, yes, yeah, service business. That's the thing that I can feel and touch the most that I feel like I understand the most at this point of where I am in the stage. So that's where I naturally gravitate towards. But then I start researching in and I'm like, get a little bit nervous about what I'm buying. So like, do you mind just drilling down into specifically that around services a bit? Because that's something I'm playing with in my head. I mean, some people like to go for asset heavy businesses, you know, manufacturing with like all of these machines that are pretty niche. And when you go in, you don't know what they are. So you have to learn what they are. For me, when I think about those types of businesses, I think about a lot of capital expenditure. I think about a lot of different types of machines that I personally probably don't know about. There's just a whole other element of like planning that I need to do where service, I agree, like it can feel risky because it's generally like a brand name and a bunch of people and an organized system for providing service. But I don't know, I'm just passionate about good service, I think. And uh, I think if you go over and above providing a service, you can stand out. So I, I, maybe I just back myself or my companies rather. If we continue to focus on providing a great service to the end user, then like business will take care of itself. Totally. Yeah, that's like good to know because I've come from that world. That's where I started going through uni. I was on the phones. I was doing all that kind of customer service stuff before I went into my salary position. So I'm like, okay, that's an opportunity where I can add a lot of value here. And it's good to hear from your perspective that just because it's asset light doesn't mean that it's a hard avoid. And my, my only question to that is like, at what point, if ever, would you consider just starting the service business versus buying it? Like, I feel like this is a question for people to consider specifically in the home services space and services more generally. I don't really want to do startups. I just think there's so much value in buying an existing engine system machine with a recognized brand. And you don't know, again, it depends on the type of business, but you're talking about home service. You may have a contract with your local municipality and that's kind of recurring revenue because they always call you in your town when they have an issue. Like those things are a lot of value and they're hard to get if you're a startup. If you're a startup as well, like you are doing it. And if you buy an existing machine, then you will probably come in and have a team already out there doing the work in the field like this. I mean, that's just three reasons I could talk about that for ages, but. I'm a big believer in buying existing. Yes, you take on the debt. Yes, you have to then grow the business to pay off the debt faster. That's the best way to pay off that debt. But like I'm a big advocate for paying to, to buy an existing business. That leads nicely into like specifically around service-based businesses. What are you looking for? You mentioned a couple of things there, maybe some exclusive contracts, which kind of add a bit of moat to the business. What sort of things are you looking for in a service business 
as you're going through your search? Well, I mean, right now I would consider service businesses that complement maybe like a roofing business or some of the other businesses that we've got. Like I would be interested in an HVAC business because it kind of becomes a suite. Like we can just service your home. Like we can maintain that relationship maybe and, and help in many different areas of the home. So like you've got to think about those kind of synergies. When I started, I just looked at every opportunity that came my way. And now that we have a few companies under our belt, I'm being more selective about my time and the opportunities I go after. Because what I've got is good and I want to intentionally add to it. But like at the beginning, if you're talking about just beginning, I'd look at everything. And like, because you might come across businesses you've never heard of before or services you've never even thought of before. Man, it's so crazy. When you're on Twitter, you start seeing all these weird niche service businesses, like cleaning, restaurant, hood, vents, all this cleaning windows, like whatever it is. And you start going like, did these people just fall into these things? Obviously, if they're buying businesses, they're just looking for the opportunity. But like, how do people start getting into this, some of these things? One of the big ones near where I live, I've seen trucks driving around for is dog poop scooping businesses. So people don't want to go into their yard to pick up their own dog poops. They hire a guy in a van to just go, right, pick it up. Throw it in the back. Off is that goes. serious? I'm being serious. One that I saw that was crazy was these like moms that are going around to all the schools and doing like knit treatment. They're doing knit treatment on all the kids, just like remote knit treatments everywhere. And they're blowing up. I have not seen that. That's funny. Yeah. Hilarious. Again, building off that, one of the things that I've heard you say quite a bit, and it's something that I'm in the process of doing is building the buy box. So I've heard a few pieces just from different pieces of content, some stuff around EBITDA, some stuff around low hanging fruit some stuff around, you know, an owner who's retiring. If you're comfortable sharing, like, do you have like a set criteria that you're looking for specifically when you're running through this approach? Yeah, I'm attracted by businesses that um, have low hanging fruit, like you said. So things where I can immediately add value. And I, that means like not day one, but like in day 100, for example, once I'm settled. So I found that a lot of businesses haven't increased their prices during COVID amazingly. So like that, that would be something that is reasonable to do if your cost basis is increased and your margins have been squeezed. And things like if I look around the business and I see like they fax things around, like that's again, like a way I, I know there's some efficiencies buried in the business that we can find. So that's the low hanging fruit. I like retiring sellers, like you said. You don't have to do that. That is just something I like. I like working retiring sellers, people that have worked really hard to build something really cool and to help them transition to the next stage of life and take over the baton and, and run their business and almost honor their legacy of what they've built. Like that, that's important to me. Size, I actually started to define uh, revenue rather than EBITDA, although I really think in terms of EBITDA, I think soon, soon my buy box will be like nothing less than a million dollars of EBITDA. But right now, I'll look at things lower than that for sure. How low? Because I've heard you say like one of the pieces of advice is like, don't buy too low. So what is too low? Anything under like 500 of earnings, it's just too small at this point. I would have maybe gone down to about 300 of earnings to start, but that's honestly bordering on too small. So maybe I should say 400 and above. I'd say 500 to lower, like honestly, for the most part, if it's lower than like 750 at this point, I probably won't be interested of earnings. The version of you... April 2022, though, they would have been considering down to 300 at the minimum. Yeah, maybe like I would have looked at anything 350 or above. Okay, that's good to know because, yeah, the initial thing is to think like you're kind of trapped in your past and maybe not in the opportunity of the future. And so it's like breaking out of that that thinking, right? Honestly, you asked me what did I look at a year and a half ago and I said 350 just then. Like that is probably true, but was that the right 
you know, metric or target for me? Probably not. I should have probably been looking at 500 or above then as well. It's just starting to change your mindset. And like now, a couple of the companies are doing really well. So like, it doesn't make sense for me to spend a lot of time on something that does half a million of earnings anymore. Yeah. You've had a perspective shift. You're thinking differently now. You've seen the opportunity, you know, it works. You've got the confidence. And now, like, why would you waste your time when you could be spending your time on higher value opportunities? And would you, would you ever consider like this idea of just buying competitors in your area and just small acquisitions in the same space and just growing a bigger company altogether? So a roll up, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that is another, you know, you talked about like hold co versus one company. Well, one option is if you do the one company is then you add, like you said, smaller operators in the same space to the roll up. Yeah. I have plans to do that in a new industry in the local area. Interesting. Here. So I, I'm, I'm thinking I might give that a go kind of in the next year or so. And it also brings another point to mind, like when you talk about 500 or above, okay, so there's some people that will be sitting there going, okay, how do I get those funds even just for the down payment? So one thing I've heard you say is this like, the first deal is the hardest. So whatever you've got to do to get that first deal across the line, I've heard you even say, get in on 10, 20% for your first deal. So you've got a base, maybe with other people. So you can then go out and say, okay, guys, I'm serious. I've got this behind me. I'm partners with these guys. It sounds like you're better off trying to find the people that you can get you up to that 500K and above and partnering with them, even on a smaller amount for your first deal. Then it is trying to mess around with something a little bit smaller and maybe more manageable in your mind. Yeah, I'd much rather have 25% of a 500K earnings company than 100% of a 125K earnings company. Totally. And you actually, I've got a quote here. You said, when you get into the right circles, you realize that actually there's a lot of capital out there ready to be deployed for people who bring good deals to the table. So it gets me thinking because that's, that's one of the limiting mindsets, right? Of someone starting in this space. I don't know anyone that's willing to give me X, Y, Z amount of money. Like, do these people exist? Is this some sort of like magical thing that's out there in the world? But what you're saying is you've seen these people, you've interacted with these people. Where are they and how do you get started interacting with them? That's a great question. I'm passionate about this because I'm from an amazing family, but a family that doesn't have huge amounts of money. And so like I had limiting mindsets in this area as well. And I've just seen it over time that it exists. I think if you start to provide lots of value for people who do have funds, like that's a great way to kind of build those kind of relationships. I've seen younger folk get in on deals just by giving and serving and being as helpful as they possibly can to people who are like five, 10 years ahead of them or even more. But once you start to get into those circles, it's not really a function of age. It's really just like almost like the scales kind of fall off your eyes and you see it. Because when you're younger, you just see what you know. There are different steps you could do practically. Like, yes, try and find people and provide massive value to them. But then as you start to progress in your journey, like joining masterminds can be pretty helpful. That's been important in my journey. Pay for access, right? They're kind of like cults, you know, like you pay to go into a friendship group, but then everyone's like on the same page and at the same level and helping each other. Okay, that's a good takeaway for something to target. And yeah, I really resonate with that whole value piece, right? So when I was running an agency, we were creating content for people, right? So my thing was always take the stuff that's already online, rip it off, create something that's 10 times better than what they're currently doing, share it with them, put the time in up front with, it's not like a blast cold email campaign. And then basically just go to them, hey, here's a gift. I love what you do. And it's also an idea if you want to collaborate together, let me know if that interests you. If not, use it however you want. In my head, as I was thinking about, okay, how do I apply this to the deal space, right? This kind of value first mindset before you ask for anything. And I kind of was just doing head miles of like, 
the chicken or the egg? What comes first, the deals or what comes first, the people? Because okay, just to go back one step, I saw the deals as the value that you're potentially bringing to these people and correct me if I'm wrong, but you still need to have people that may be interested to be able to bring those deals. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that dilemma? Is it just both at the same time, one before the other and what value to provide? I was speaking to a newish real estate investor over the weekend and they'd just been given a, a minority stake in a self-storage facility and he'd met his now partner, the more experienced guy to meet up. They were introducing each other and he's like, hi, I'm so-and-so. And by the way, I'm looking for a 12, 24 unit, whatever like straight out the gate. So first of all, like you are telling people what you want, but then for some reason this, you know, you start following each other on socials and this person had like put out a problem on Facebook, like, Hey, I need someone to do this, this, this. And then this guy who wanted to just get involved immediately just messaged him was like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of all of it for you. Like, just leave it with me because of that. They kind of built some trust. And then he's now a minority owner of a, a commercial building they bought together. And he's kind of like the local partner. So there was value still exchange, but because he went out of his way to not ask for money, but just take care of a problem for this guy. Because at some point, as you grow on your journey, your time gets more and more compressed and you just don't have time for kind of maybe like the admin tasks you used to do when you're at the beginning of your journey. So if you can take care of some of these problems, I like what you said about, I wish more people had that perspective because what, what drives me up the wall is uh you get cold DMs from people and it's just like, they don't even um, bother to look at your name. They're just like, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. looked at your channel. I think it's so great. I think we could help. Let's connect. I'm like, I don't, just don't respond because they look, even look at my name, let alone my content. There's nothing, there's no value out there. But I've seen it before where people would download a video, edit it a bit and be like, hey, I hope you don't mind, but I just tried a few different edits. So is this something you'd like the look of? It's like, whoa, this guy really put the effort in. Yeah, 100%. So it sounds like what you're talking about there is just like, it's basically an awareness piece. You have to be aware and then you have to be opportunistic when it strikes. Yeah. But in saying that, you still need to know the people. So you need to be introducing yourself into these situations where you might meet these people. Like I put out a post on Twitter yesterday, like I got to start getting out from behind my keyboard and going to meet people. This morning, I woke up to an email invite to like this exposition of business buyers and sellers that's happening on in Paris on Monday. Oh, awesome. I was like, okay, this is crazy. I literally just spoke about that yesterday. I wake up this morning after I just, because I just signed up for something, basically like a brokerage site. And then I got, I'm like, okay, damn. Okay, cool. There's going to be hundreds of people in this space there. Let's go. And it's on Monday and it's in my city. What are the odds? All right, let's go. And let's start getting involved that way. I guess playing that out get in contact with them, figure out what they actually need and then try and be of value in whatever unique way that is. Yeah, that's great. And getting out and meeting people is so important. That's such an important component. You don't just want to add value from behind your keyboard. And you're only ever one connection. I know this is corny, but it's true. You're only ever one connection away from changing your life. You don't know who that next person is you're going to meet and you don't know when that opportunity will arrive. So you've got to constantly have that in your mind. As corny as that is, it's true. Totally. And I would add to that, right? Like even for me, like I am no expert at all, but just starting to put content out there on the surface level, not many people interacting with it, but all of a sudden I get a message. Hey dude, I'm in Paris. I'm also searching for a business. I'm from the States. Let's catch up. I'm going to catch up with a guy for coffee. Like I don't know that's where awesome. that's going. So not only obviously, yeah, face to face, but also creating content is a good way to like kind of tempt fate, if that makes sense. And you're probably seeing that yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's been amazing year for me since I started putting stuff out online. And one of my regrets is I didn't start this sooner. I still waited 
nine months after you know my first purchase to start and i should have started day one and just documented the journey because that's what i'm doing what's happened in the last year has been amazing we met through yeah. instagram and just yeah. keep interacting with people i've never met before but we build up a relationship over instagram and my heart is to provide as much value as possible so i know you've sent me some helpful messages that are like this is the kind of stuff i'd like to see so that's great for me. And I hope I can keep providing that value to you and other people who are searching like you. Yeah, definitely. There's actually a guy that does it really well who you've been on his podcast, The Action Academy with Brian Luben. I think that's how you pronounce it. Oh, yes. When you yes. follow him, either him or his team reaches out and be like, hey, this is where I get all my content ideas. One of the things you're struggling with, are you looking for real estate? You're looking for businesses. He's like on the front foot approaching people that follow him. It might even be an auto DM. I don't even know that he's getting ideas from. So that's something to consider as well. Yeah, Brian's uh, built a great community. I don't know why, but I'd have never seen that message from him. But it doesn't surprise me at all that when you swallow it, you get uh, like a, a message like that. Because again, it's a way to provide value. When we talk about financing, we've, we've dug into a little bit. Okay, go for something bigger and figure out a way to make that happen because the opportunities are there. At what point are you starting to sort of plan for how you're going to for the acquisition. So like, obviously you're not entering in this with, with no money. Well, I wouldn't think so. But at what point are you starting to engage bankers? At what point are you maybe looking at external people? Are you trying to get the deals first and then figure it out? How does that kind of tie in? I'm going to very quickly answer that from a US perspective, but then I want to flip to the European side. So sure. the SBA scheme in the US is probably the most popular way to buy a business. My summarized answer on that is bring your SBA lender in early. So meet some first, ideally in the local area where the business is and start talking to them about what's permissible and not permissible. So you can start building out some basic, simple financial models on what you've received from the business. Does it make sense? Can the business cash flow? On the European side, so I would say the principles still remain. You're going to have to start engaging with bankers and start to figure out how people structure these deals. Like, of course, you could go in and maybe do a seller financing deal, but I don't want to be like one I'm of those gurus. Bets it's on always, that. Yeah, yeah. T talking about like, yeah, it's always possible. Like, it's just it is out there. Yeah, but it, it's not common. So one of the avenues that I'm going down, like, I'm just LinkedIn Sales Navigator finding financial planners, bankers as like a potential deal source, developing relationships with. But the upside of that is, as you start speaking to those private bankers and that kind of thing, you've also potentially got a lead into lending conversation as well. At least that's what's kind of playing out in my head. As I, as I mentioned, like I'm figuring this out day by day. Well, I would say start that and see if that, test that theory, see if it's true. Yeah. Like I know what it's like to be not in your home country. Yeah. You've somehow got to figure out how people do it in your, in your country where you currently are and then start to just inch into the space. Like you've got to somehow have an anchor in to the society there and, and then kind of inch in from there. Cause like I know as a foreigner, like it, sometimes you're at a disadvantage. It's advantage and disadvantage. You stand out because you got a weird voice, you know, people remember you, but then at the same time, you have no basis, like you don't have any historical knowledge of the country, like people who grew up there, which is a disadvantage. 100%. And on that point, like I even double stand out because it's my second language, but in some ways that's appreciated. And in other ways in the business buying space, again, it's just a hypothesis at this point. I feel like maybe there's a lot more people doing it in the USA, for example, than maybe where I am. So Maybe there's like a supply demand benefit there as well. But again, that's to be tested. I would say in closing that the boomer generation isn't country specific. It's post-World War II specific. And so that's happened. On that note, 46% of businesses in France are owned by boomers. So yeah. There you go. So like it's there. Yeah. So that there is all this space to tap into. And 
France and maybe the UK for me one day. And it's kind of exciting, I think. Okay, so we're going to have to tie it up there, but would you just leave us with like one actionable thing that like, just like a keystone habit, just that one thing, if we just drill down, whether it's reviewing businesses, whatever it is, what's your closing piece of advice for me and the audience who are just starting out on this journey? I mean, I want to tie it together with some things that we've touched on here. I feel like not being overwhelmed by the size of the opportunity in front of you and, and actually getting out from behind a laptop and meeting people and talking to people is important. So in summary, taking action for sure is the best way to just start. Go to networking events, analyze deals, meet brokers, talk to bankers. So you've got to start somewhere or else you'll never do it. And you'll end up living with regret, which you don't want to do. Yeah. So take action is what I'd say. Yeah. And uh, yeah, really enjoyed the conversation. And I, I think you'll probably be in the show notes, but as at bizbuyingbrit is my Instagram. Occasionally I do webinars and I run courses a few times a year. All of that kind of stuff you can find on my Instagram. Totally. We'll pop that all in. So the Instagram is the best place to find you. And then obviously the podcast as well that you started. Yeah, man. Thanks so much for chatting today. It's been awesome. I've loved being able to pick your brain and I got a lot out of it. So I appreciate it a lot. Thanks, Jake. See you next time. Cheers. Bye. All right. That's a conversation with James Richardson and man, it didn't disappoint. The big takeaway for me was around business size and specifically don't buy too small. I really didn't expect that. And I think it's easy to think I'll get started with something small and build my way up over time. But James really made a point of targeting businesses with 500k in earnings and above even if that means taking a smaller slice of a bigger pie. And then if this is the case, applying that value first approach to the people who may have those connections or those funds to partner up with was key. Anyway, I hope you guys enjoyed the conversation. If you did, please share it with one friend. The more we grow this podcast, the better guests I can get on for you guys and the better entrepreneurs we can all become. So if you got any value, pull out your phone right now, jump into Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening and hit share to send it to a friend. I seriously can't thank you enough, guys, and I'll catch you on the next episode.